The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 6. We are finishing this morning, Lord willing, the Bread of Life Discourse. John chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 60 to 71. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's holy word. I want you to look at verse 66. Look at verse 66. This is how Jesus' Galilean ministry ends. This is the climactic point. Look what happens, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Look at that word disciple. It means a follower, a learner. We're not talking about here about the Pharisees. We're not talking about pagan Gentiles. We're not talking about Sadducees or other types of Jews. We're talking about people who claim to be Jesus's disciples. And here Jesus has been ministering for two years, working miracles, teaching, doing all sorts of things. And after two years, what's the result? With many of his disciples, they leave. Why? They wanted more food. They wanted Jesus to make food fall from the sky every day. They wanted Jesus to be an earthly king. It was political. They wanted Jesus to meet their demands. And so when they didn't get what they wanted, they stopped following Jesus. And the reality is, is that this same thing has been going on for the past 2,000 years within the church. Again, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about people who claim to be followers of Christ. 
we're talking about people who claim to be believers. Many, many, many fall away. One of the great persecutions of the church happened in the year 303 AD. That was when Diocletian, the, the emperor, uh, put out a mass persecution of believers across the entire Roman Empire. And just like that, the church is split in two. Just like that, the church is split in two. You had the, you had the faithful disciples, and then you had what they called the traitores, the traitors, those who fell away. There's a term in America, maybe you've heard it, it was popular when uh, about a century ago with the revivals. It's called a backslider. You know what a backslider is? It's somebody who slides back to their old position. You know, the, the revivalists would come into a town and preach, and people would get saved and walk the aisle, and then would leave the town, and then three weeks later, what happens? Backsliding. People are back down at the bar again, right? Well, Jesus warned us that this would happen. I just want to show you this very briefly. We don't have much time to spend here at all, but I want you to turn to the left in Matthew 13. This is one of the great parables. You know this parable. This is the parable of the sower where Jesus talks about how the work of an evangelist is like a farmer who sows seed. As an evangelist, you sow the seed of the gospel. And in Matthew 13, Jesus says that the the gospel lands on four types of soils, and each of those soils represents a type of response to Jesus, to the message. And the four soils are the path that goes alongside the field. Remember, uh, the birds come up and eat the seed that falls on the path. Jesus later says that that represents Satan, when, when the evil one snatches away what has been sown. The other two types of soils that, that come before the good soil are the rocky soil and the thorny soil. If you look at verse 20 of Matthew 13, look what Jesus says. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. What does it look like with this person? Disciple or not a disciple? Looks like they're a disciple. They've walked the aisle. They've said a prayer. They've started coming to church. They receive the truth with joy, but then look what happens. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So that's the second type of soil. The third is next. Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. So he hears it. He seems to receive it. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So what happens? They get caught up in the world and keeping up with the Joneses, and they backslide. And then verse 23, you have the good soil. This is the faithful disciple. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and another 30. If you would, turn back to John 6. The difference there is the fruit, right? At the end of the day, the true disciple is going to bear fruit. The true disciple is going to be faithful. The true disciple is not going to fall away because of the cares of the world or persecution. That's the difference. But there will be some in the church who look like Christians, 
who at the end of the day fall away. And if you've been in the church long enough, you can count those people. You see those people. You've seen this happen over and over again. One of the things that is interesting right now about this particular moment in our nation's nation's history is that it is becoming harder and harder to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Because what is happening right now in our country is a massive culture shift that has been taking place for a long time, but now we're really seeing the distinctions in our culture because now our culture is what I call post-Christian where the majority of the culture no longer in any way claims to be a believer. They're, they're secularists. And the way that you're seeing this is by the advance of the whole LBGTQ plus agenda, right? That's code for the religion of secularism, which is tolerance. We tolerate anything that um, you desire. It's invading everything. And you're seeing that uh, this month, especially with Pride Month, I was walking with my kids just up at the local elementary school, and from all the way from the school to the track uh, by the playground, there's a long sidewalk, and all on that li- long sidewalk we saw where the little kids had drawn rainbow flags all the way up the sidewalk with chalk. So what is happening in the public schools in our country is that kids are being taught from their earliest ages this religion of secularism. That's what they're being taught. I read a statistic this week that said 30% of Gen Z now identifies as LBGTQ. So, here's what's happened, though. Our nation has cut itself off from God, His law, Get his Ten Commandments out of the court, all of that. You cut yourself off from God. What do you have for a moral standard? What do you have? The the moral standard was from God. Once you cut yourself off from God, everything is relative. Everything is amorphous. There is no metaphysical answer for anything. What happens when you die? I don't know. We become dust. I was talking to somebody this week. He says, it's the circle of life talking about a dead family member. Well, no. First comes death, then comes the judgment. This isn't the Lion King. It's our Father's world. Two plus two now is up for grabs, right? Because when you cut yourself off from God, there are no fixed rules. You've severed the tether to the mothership, and you are floating on a spacewalk. I read this week Job 28. Job says in Job 28, 28, he says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Did you get that? Where do you find wisdom? Where do you find wisdom? The fear of the Lord is wisdom. That is understanding. You want to be wise in this world? Fear the Lord. Read the Bible. That's all the answers right here. That's where wisdom is found. And what we are witnessing in this country is the catastrophic confusion of what happens when you abandon God and His wisdom. Why do I bring this up? Because 
unless there is a revival in this land, it is not going to get better, it's going to get worse. And it's going to become harder and harder and harder for you to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. Because you are going to find yourself surrounded everywhere you go by people who don't appreciate what you stand for. And you're going to be blacklisted and you're going to be canceled, and you're going to be shamed, and you're going to be shouted down, and you're going to be maligned, and you're going to be abandoned by friends, and it's going to be tough to be a disciple. But you know what? It was tough 2,000 years ago. Look at the response in John 6 of the 12. Obviously, Judas is going to be the betrayer, but look, look at the response of the 12. Verse 68, here all the people are going away, and Peter, speaking for the twelve, answered Jesus. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. We're not going anywhere. We're standing fast. We are dedicated disciples. So, you have, in this passage, you have the defecting disciples, that's the majority. You have the dedicated disciples. That's the few. What are you going to be? Are you going to defect when the going gets tough, or are you going to be dedicated to your master? What is it? It's right there in front of you. Now, this response in the, in the last 11 verses of John 6 is really helpful because it gives us insight into what a defecting disciple is and what a dedicated disciple is. And I want to show you the qualities, the attributes of each. So, first I want to show you the qualities of a defecting disciple. How do you know if you're a defecting disciple? How do you know if a friend is a defecting disciple? Well, the, the qualities are all right here. The first quality is of a defecting disciple is that they're offended at Jesus' teaching. They are offended at Jesus' teaching. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? When they say that it's a hard saying, that it's difficult to hear, they don't mean that it's hard to understand. They don't mean it's quantum physics. They mean that it's hard to believe. It's offensive to them. The word is scleros. It means rough. Think like a burr in your saddle. They were offended at Jesus' teaching as in they didn't like it. What didn't they like? Well, they wanted, remember, a worldly Messiah, a political Messiah, not a spiritual Savior. They were not willing to relinquish their own authority. Remember, Jesus said things like in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. They didn't like that. They wanted to retain th their own authority over their lives. They did not like that Jesus said he was greater than Moses. They're lifting up Moses, saying, look, Moses gave all this man in the wilderness, but Jesus, you've only multiplied the bread and the, and the fish one time, but yet you're saying that you're greater than Moses. They didn't like that. 
And then the, the big thing that they really didn't like is what Jesus said in verse 53 when he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. They really didn't like that. And part of it was is they didn't understand it, but another part of it was is this principle of dependence upon Christ that they didn't want to be completely dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see this offense in verse 61. Look what Jesus says. Jesus exercises a degree of divine omniscience here. He knows what's in the hearts of man because he is truly God. Look what Jesus says, verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, so he knows, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Answer, yes, they do. They do take offense. The word for offense that Jesus uses is scandalizai. It means cause to stumble. What's a scandal? It, it's, it's, a, it's a stumbling block. It's a, it's a cause of offense. And they were stumbling over the content of Jesus' teaching. The offense of Jesus' teaching is never from a problem with the teaching. Remember this. It's never a problem with Jesus' teaching. It's always a problem with the human heart. When you're doing a Bible study with somebody at Starbucks, and you get to a verse, and they say, I don't like that, the problem is not with the verse. The problem is right here. Here's what J.C. Ryle said. He said, so long as the heart is naturally proud, worldly, unbelieving, and fond of self-indulgence, there will never be wanting people who will say of Christian doctrines and precepts, quote, these are hard sayings, who can hear them? People will always buck against the teaching of the Bible. Today, those doctrines are doctrines like the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is the only way. The reality that Jesus taught that there will be a final judgment and a heaven and a hell, and that people are going to both. The reality of the sinfulness of man and the need for an atonement, that we can't make it to God on our own, that somebody had to come down to save us and rescue us. The doctrine that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that God ordained it that way. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity, that there is one God who has always existed as three persons, and that Jesus is God. You say, is that debated? Yes, it is. Look in our country. You have Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. They all deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They all deny it. That Jesus died on the cross as a sin substitute. That's essentially the entire Bible, right? But these are all problem doctrines, and the problem, again, is in the human heart. The problem is what the biblical Jesus teaches. The biblical Jesus teaches doctrines that our world doesn't like, and our world is trying to make a Jesus of our own image, that Jesus is just simply basically the prophet of secularism, that he's just the picture of tolerance and relativism. I hear people all the time, they quote to me, they say, Jesus ate with sinners. 
To which I say, yes, he did. And then he called them to repentance. That's the difference. It's not that Jesus ate with sinners and said, you're all right. (laughs) He ate with sinners and then he said, you need to believe in me because apart from me you are in your sin and you are perishing. Remember the woman caught in adultery, what does he say? Does he say, go and do your thing? No. He says, go and sin no more, right? There's always going to be offense at what Jesus taught with false disciples, with defecting disciples. The second thing, the second attribute of a defecting disciple is that they're skeptical. They are skeptical in their heart about Jesus and His authority. Deep down in their heart, they truly don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. There's a check in their spirit. There's doubts about the virgin conception, perhaps. There's doubts about His claims to be Messiah. There's doubts now, for example, about the literal bodily resurrection. If you look at verse 42, you can see these doubts. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So they they didn't believe that he was the son of God. They thought he was just a, a, a normal person, just like anyone else. But Jesus raises the stakes on their doubts. Look at verse 62. He says, then, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? He's basically saying, look, if you saw the ultimate manifestation of my glory, if it was very clear to you that I was the Son of God ascending into heaven, then would you believe? This is a clear reference to His ascension after the resurrection. Jesus said in John 3.15, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Heaven is where the Son of God was before He took on humanity, and heaven is where the Son of God went after He was raised from the dead. And Jesus is saying, look, if you were to see this, then would you believe? And probably most of them did not, but perhaps some of them did at Pentecost, right? When thousands were brought into the kingdom after Jesus' ascension. False disciples, though, are deep down skeptical about the faith, regardless of how much proof you show them. And you see this in the questions that they ask. Was the world really created in six days? Was there really a literal Adam? Was there a global flood that only eight people survived? Was Jonah really swallowed by a fish? Did Jesus really walk on water Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is this book really the Word of God? Those are the questions of the skeptic. And and what has happened in the Bible Belt is people have been raised to be Christians, and that's a good thing. We should raise our children to be Christians. But it's not a good thing if you've never actually been born again and become a true disciple. And so you have in the Bible Belt some people that grew up in Christian environments, going to church, they do Christian things, but deep down in their heart of hearts, they are skeptical about the faith, and they don't actually believe the truth. 
and they're among us. There's, there's probably some here this morning, and, and you know it in your heart. You're, you're a skeptic deep down. You want to believe, but you're skeptical. You, you, you're trying to make yourself believe. And, and here's the problem. This is the third thing about the defecting disciple, is that you're fleshly. The defecting disciple is fleshly. And here's what I mean by that. Verse 63, look at verse 63. Jesus says this, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The flesh, in biblical terms, is your entire old life before Christ. Who you are before Christ is flesh. You're, you're in the flesh. Let me give you some cross-references. This is what Paul says in Romans 7.18. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, my person. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He says, just a few verses later in Romans 8.5, he says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, what's interesting, I think, is that we try our hardest to preserve some spark of goodness in the flesh, something in our flesh that's good, that can respond to God, that can do good works. We want to be, you know, you hear this all the time in movies, there's still something good in you, I can just see it. Right, when that Star Wars? Um, well, here's, look what Jesus says. He says, the flesh is no help at all. Is that some help or no help? No help. Luther said this about this verse. He says, that nothing is not a little something. It's not something. It's nothing. Your flesh, your old man, who you, who you are outside of Christ, your mind, your desires, your affections, they aren't going to get you to Jesus. Jesus says this, your flesh is no help at all. Your flesh doesn't help you understand or accept the things of God one iota. So what do we need? Look what Jesus says, first part of the verse, it is the Spirit. Who's that? the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives life. You remember what, in this, what Jesus said just a few chapters earlier in John 3? He's talking to Nicodemus about the, the new birth. Verse 5, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is is spirit. In other words, you need what is born of the Holy Spirit in order to see spiritual things. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the Spirit does this work in the human soul in order to bring life. And that's why Jesus says, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, because this is really key. This is really crucial. Pay attention right here. This is how the Holy Spirit saves people. The way that the Holy Spirit saves people is through the Word of God. 
That is so crucial for you to understand. The Spirit uses the Word of God to make us alive. Remember, the God created the world through His Word. And it is through His Word that the heart of the sinner is changed. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1.23. He says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.4, My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. God's Word is what the Holy Spirit uses to save. His Word is spirit and life. It is God's Word that sets hearts aflame. And the problem with the modern church is that we have functionally hidden God's Word behind a veil of entertainment and smoke machines, right? I can't tell you how many preachers I listen to, and it's like 12 minutes before they even mention a text. All these funny stories, one after the other, one after the other, one after the other, as if they're afraid that people are going to leave and walk away. Just get to the Word. That's all you need. It's the Word of God that is spirit and life. And so what is key is when churches rediscover divine revelation that this Word is powerful in the hands of the Holy Spirit. The the Holy Spirit doesn't need our ingenuity or our comedic genius to advance the kingdom. All He needs is the Word. And And that's what brings awakening and revival in the heart. All you need is the Word of God. I was reminded of this. I was reading 1 Thessalonians this week, and Paul's talking about his experience in Thessalonica. And this is what he says. He says, this is chapter 1, verse 5. He said, our gospel came to you not only in word, so it, it comes in, in Word. It, it's a gospel that's preached in the Word, but he says it's not only in Word, he says, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, that the Holy Spirit breathed life into that Word and brought many, many people into the kingdom of God because the Word of God is Spirit and life. And until the Holy Spirit does this work in the soul, there will be unbelief. And that's the fourth quality of the defecting disciple is they are unbelieving. Unbelieving. Look at verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. There are some of you who do not believe. And again, Jesus is exercising His divine omniscience. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So Jesus knows. He is God. He knows the human heart. We see this over and over again in John's gospel. He knows who are the real, true disciples. He knows who the false disciples are. He knows who will betray him. And this right here is the crux of the matter, is that the defecting disciples do not trust and believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They do not believe. 
and some will betray him. You ask, well, why doesn't Jesus just get rid of the betrayers? Why does he keep them around? Well, there's, this is an interesting story. In the Old Testament, David was running from Saul, and this is in 1 Samuel 23. He comes to a village called Keilah, and he basically saves the village from Philistines, and he comes into the village, and then Saul finds that he's there, and Saul sends out some people to get him in the village, to surround him in the village. And David goes to the priest, whose name is Abiathar, and David asks him, he says, will Saul siege the city? And the priest was wearing his ephod, which was the the basically the, the chest piece that had the, the stones in it, and somehow sometimes the stones would do something to, to basically reveal God's will on an issue. And David asked him, will Saul siege the city? And the priest says, yes, he will. And then David asked him, will the men of the city betray me when the city is sieged? And the priest says, yes, they will. And so David understands that he will be betrayed what do you think he does? Does he stay in the city? No, he does not. He leaves. He goes. He saves himself, and then I think he ultimately saved the city. He took his 600 men out of the city, and they went on the run again. Here's what's interesting about Jesus. He does the opposite. He knows that Judas will betray him. He knows who the defectors are, but he keeps them in the fold. Why? Because he knows they will serve his ultimate purpose of giving his life on the cross. That for him to be taken captive, there needs to be a betrayer. So even here, you see this drumbeat of the cross. Remember when Jesus was at the Last Supper, what did he tell Judas? He said, what you are going to do, do it quickly now. Do it quickly now. Jesus, all this time, is marching forward to the atonement. So, what's the answer, you might ask, to the unbelief, the, the life in the flesh, the skepticism, the offense in the false disciples? What's the answer? If, if you're sitting here in this, you know, and you're talking to, to a friend and they're telling you, I don't believe, I'm skeptical, I'm offended, and, and, and they're saying all these things. What's the answer? Well, what's interesting that Jesus says the answer in verse 65, the answer, Jesus says, is the sovereign work of God to overcome our resistance. It, I find this fascinating. Look at verse 65. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Look at that phrase, no one can come. Remember that coming to Jesus is synonymous with believing in Jesus. In this text, eating Jesus' flesh and drinking His blood is synonymous with faith, and so is coming to Jesus synonymous with faith. Jesus is saying, no one can believe in me unless it is granted Him by the Father. That word grant means to give. So the capacity, Jesus is saying, to believe must be given to us by the sovereign hand of God. And as Americans, when we read this, 
This grates against our sensibilities because we are the people who do it ourselves. You're here in this country because you had an ancestor that crossed the Atlantic Ocean and said, I'm going to do something myself, and I'm going to chart a new course. That's who we are, right? We, we, are, we are doers. We are people who get things done ourselves. And what Jesus is saying here, look, that's not how heaven works. <sighs> to, to get to heaven, you need the sovereign hand of God to grant you faith. And the Bible asserts this from beginning to end. This is what Paul says, Ephesians 2.8. He says, for by grace, what's grace? It's a, it's a work of God. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So just totally obliterates any, any claim of, of work that we can have towards faith, right? That it's of grace. It's the gift of God. He says, next verse, it's not a result of work so that no one may boast. You can't boast in your salvation that you overcame your fleshly hindrances. It's a work of God, Jesus is saying. And I think it's encouraging that as an evangelist, that Jesus trusts completely in the sovereign work of God. And just in point of application, I think this means two things for us. One, when you really clearly present the gospel, you don't need to go away worrying that that person's eternal destiny depends upon you, because it ultimately depends upon God to grant the faith. And then two, this means that we can pray and ask God to work in the heart of the lost person to lead them to repentance and faith. And that's what Jesus is relying upon here. He's not shaking in his sandals because so many people are leaving. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And that leads to the fifth and final characteristic of these defecting disciples is that they are deserting. They ultimately desert Jesus. They ultimately renounce Jesus. Look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The result is, is that many of the disciples turned back to their old way of life, they went back to their former things, their former thinking, their former lifestyle, and they renounce Christ. And if they do not repent and believe, they will die in their sins, and they will face judgment. You don't get a check in the box for following Christ part of the time. You have to be a true disciple. And that leads to the, the qualities of the dedicated disciples the dedicated disciples. And we're going to go through these quickly. But the first one you see in verse 67 is that they are resilient. Dedicated disciples are resilient in the face of overwhelming pressure. Look at verse 67. Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go, as, go away as well? All these people are leaving. There's, there's tremendous pressure at this point. Have you ever been a part of a group and all of a sudden everybody left the group and it's just like a couple of you and it's like, oh man, what do we do? Do we, do we go with everybody or do we stay here? 
there's tremendous pressure in these situations. And Jesus asked this question knowing that they do not want to go away, that they will be resilient, that they will stand fast, that they will swim against the tide, against this pressure. But it's in these types of moments that true disciples stand fast. True, dedicated disciples stand against the tide. They go against the grain. There was a guy in the early church named Athanasius. Have you ever heard of Athanasius? Okay. Well, this guy stood for the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. When most of the church in the fourth century said that Jesus was made, that he was less than God. There was a phrase in the fourth century, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. And he stood against the world for the deity of Christ. Spurgeon and and the Baptist Union, everybody is starting to say there's errors in Scripture. Even Spurgeon's own brother People were saying that there's not a literal resurrection, so on and so forth. Spurgeon said, no, this is where I'm standing, right here. And guess what? They kicked him out of the Baptist Union. They kicked him out. The Prince of Preachers basically killed him. Died just a few years later. But you know what he said? He said, history will vindicate me. And more importantly, God will vindicate him. God vindicates true disciples. Jesus said, or sorry, this is what John says. John says, uh, 1 John 3, 13, do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. And Jesus said, in the last days, Many will abandon the faith. He says, this is Matthew 24, 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Many will grow cold. But Jesus' true disciples will be resilient. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. So, they're resilient, and they're also submissive to Christ. True disciples, dedicated disciples, are submissive to Christ. Look at verse 68, first part. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, curios, to whom shall we go? He's saying, Lord, we have no other options. Here you see clearly Peter's submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He's not looking over his shoulder for the next great thing. He's saying, Lord, there are no other options. There's no other, there's no other place out there for us to go. We have submitted our lives to you. We are resting in you. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And they had done this. They had followed Christ. They had rested in Him. And He's saying, look, we have nowhere else to go. There's no other teacher that can provide the assurance of salvation that you do. And that leads to the third quality. 
is that a dedicated disciple is dependent. Dependent. Look what Peter says. He says, you have the words of eternal life. You have the words of eternal life. True disciples are dependent upon the Word of God. True disciples can't live without the Word of God. Remember Jesus said, um, man cannot live by bread alone, but on what? The very Word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's how true disciples live, is on the Word of God. Psalm 1-2 says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The believer can't get enough of the Word of God. That This right here is the mark of a true disciple. When I'm having a conversation with somebody out in town, and the conversation turns to Christ, and they're saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm all these things. You know what one of the first questions I ask is? What are you studying in the Bible? What are you studying right now in the Scriptures? Oh, well, you know, I, I, sometimes I get a, ver a daily verse on an app or something. Okay, you need to be studying God's Word. Go read Philippians. Go read Galatians. Go read John. What are you studying? The, the, the real disciple hungers and thirsts for the Word of God. This is one of the great litmus tests, right? Peter says, you... Jesus, we can't go anywhere. You have the words of eternal life. These words give life. They are the path to heaven. And so we need you. We are dependent upon you. Fourth quality is that the true disciple is believing. Look at verse 69. He says, and we have believed and have come to know. We believe Jesus and have come to know. These are remarkable statements. We know this word believe. It's, it's pistuo. It means to have faith. It means to trust that Jesus is who He claimed to be, the Son of God. He says, we have come to know that you are the Son of God. We believe this. And look at this phrase He adds, and have come to know. Underline that phrase. This is a, a phrase that means an experiential knowledge. An experiential knowledge. When John uses the word know in his gospel, it's describing a knowledge of experience or relationship. Remember what Jesus said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. When you believe in Jesus truly, you enter into a relationship with God that is experiential. You walk with God. You know God. And, and that's what Peter is saying here. He's saying we know this to be certain because we've experienced these things. Psalm 25, 14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. So you walk in this friendship, this intimacy, and you know it. You experience it. David says in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. It's kind of like if somebody's telling you about a great steak somewhere, and you're like, man, I, I, man, about five people have told me that this is a great steak. But then what happens when you go 
you, you, you set a reservation, you eat the steak, it's perfect, you walk away, you say, now I know that it was a good steak. You see the difference? That, that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, we believe and we know, we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And this leads to the fifth and final quality of the dedicated disciple, the true disciples, that they are reverent towards Christ. Look at the confession of Peter for the twelve. He says, and we know that you are the Holy One of God. Holy means to be set apart, to be unique. And of course, Jesus was. He was holy, sinless, the Son of God from everlasting that He took on our humanity and He lived a perfect life that He taught with the Spirit without measure. He is the Holy One of God. And what Peter is expressing here is what is true of every disciple, is that for the Lord Jesus Christ, because you know Him, because you've believed in Him, there is a sense of reverence and awe about Him that no one in this world holds a candle to Jesus. No one. Nothing. Nothing. Take all the world away and give me Jesus. I I don't need the world, its pleasures, its fame, its wealth. I don't need it. Just give me Jesus. He is holy And there is a place in your heart where he is revered. And when someone takes Christ's name in vain, it causes you to wince because he's your Lord and you love him. And he is the Holy One of God. So those are the qualities right there of the dedicated disciple. They're reverent, they're believing, they're dependent, they're submissive to Christ, and they're resilient in the face of God of difficulty. And the difficulties will continue, right? Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? So not only are they, they're being steadfast, they're resilient, and now Jesus introduces a brand new scenario. He says, one of you is a devil. In other words, one of you is going to be used by the devil to do the devil's work. And what's fascinating is, all the way up until Judas betrays Jesus, they don't know who it is. Even at the Lord's Supper, they're like, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? Think about the consternation in your heart. Jesus is saying, one of you is a devil. But that's, that's the world we live in. That, this, this isn't a perfect church. I wish everybody I could say, oh, I know for, for certain that so-and-so is a believer, that everybody's going to finish, that everybody's going to be counted righteous on the day of judgment, clothed in Christ, believing in Him. But I don't know that. Verse 71, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. He was going to betray him. So here we are, we're faced with these portraits of the dedicated disciples and the defecting disciples. Who are you? 
Where are you with the Lord Jesus Christ? He knows your heart. I can't, I can't read your heart, but Jesus, He knows your heart. You can't fool Him. Just show up with a good answer on the judgment day. You can't fool Him. And so today is the day of salvation. If you are on the wrong side of this thing, you need to get right with God. And I promise you, if you're here, it's because you're here for a reason. So the Holy Spirit puts you here today to hear this message. And the command that Jesus makes is to repent and believe. Believe in the Son of God and you will have eternal life. Believe. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that all who look upon Him will be saved. Look to Christ. Don't worry about anything else. Look to Christ. Believe. You'll be on the right side of this. Be a dedicated disciple. You will not fall away. Heavenly Father, we praise You for the work of salvation that You set your face to the cross and that you even included a betrayer as one of the twelve so that you could accomplish our salvation through a substitutionary atonement on the cross in which you paid the penalty for our sins. And because you are perfect, you rose again from the dead. And we pray, Lord, we pray that we would be faithful disciples, that we would continue to the end, that we would not defect when the persecution starts, when other opportunities come, that we would be steadfast, that we would be reverent, that we would be believing in our Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray, Lord, for those who don't believe that you would grant them eternal life, that you would grant them faith even now. They would believe and that a flame would be set ablaze in their hearts. We ask all them in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.